Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Keep calm and cut along. Fed Chair Jay Powell cuts rates and leaves room for more to come. California dreaming the Trump administration overrides the state's strict car emissions policy an all-out war. Iran's foreign minister issues a warning to Saudi Arabia and the U.S. over future military action. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move and a jam-packed show. I'll tell you, speaking of moves, first came the Federal Reserve's move and then a global central bank bonanza. More words, less action perhaps on the whole, and I'll walk you through that in just a second. But first, take a look at futures right now. We're pretty flat to a touch higher, a tenth of a percent, as you can see. It follows a volatile session yesterday, though, net-net. Majors ending the session unchanged. I think Jay Powell has to be happy with that. Views, of course, on what to do next are clearly split. But Powell stressed that the Fed will do more if it needs to. And I think the markets are seeing that right now as glass half full. Now, maybe someone filled President Trump's glass a little here, too. He blasted the Fed Thursday, saying they had failed and they lacked guts. But he said on TV today that Powell's job is safe. Good news, because today's job actually is more about plumbing than central banking for Jay Powell. The Fed injecting a further $75 billion into the financial system today to keep bank-to-bank lending rates down. Jay Powell said yesterday that a further fix, like perhaps bond buying, might be needed. It's like a game of whack-a-mole here. Let's move on swiftly. European markets are higher right now. We've had the Bank of England holding rates steady and Norway well and truly swimming against the tide here. They hiked rates today for the fourth time in a year. The governor said uh, he wants normal. He wants a normal policy rate. What on earth is normal in this day and age? What a luxury if he can find it. Meanwhile, over in Japan, Governor Kuroda was asked whether the central bank will provide more support. He said, quote, we are eager to act given heightening global risks. The question here is how and, and what else do they do here? I tell you what, in the meantime, Hong Kong not hanging around, lowering rates once again in the face of those protests. I told you it was a bank bonanza. Let's get to the drivers because we're going to talk about the Fed. Claire Sebastian joins us once again on this story. I think it's a pal the plumber to a pal the peacemaker here, given the divides on the governing council here, Claire. But he did leave the door open to future cuts. And I think that was what investors at least wanted to hear here. Yeah, Judy, I think the artful dodger is another phrase that people are using uh, to to denote Powell today. He certainly uh, made it clear that the Fed would do whatever it takes, that they would look at the economy, keep watching the data. uh, And if that prompted them to to cut more, they would do that. He said the same uh, about the the efforts they've been taking to stabilize the overnight lending market, injecting uh, cash into the financial system. He said, uh, well, he didn't announce any kind of permanent facility to support that or any uh, immediate rises to the Fed balance sheet. He said they would continue to, to, to support that uh, facility as and when it was needed. But look, 
This is a man, this is a Fed chair who has been very vocal on the power of forward guidance to actually serve as a tool in monetary policy. He didn't really use that so much today uh, or, or yesterday when he, when he gave that press conference. He was very kind of non-committal. He said, this is all about the data. This is all about going meeting to meeting. And this, uh, you know, really is probably part of the strategy. He's dealing with a lot of variables here, a trade war, the potential uh, for a hard Brexit. His, his strategy is not to move the market too far in one direction or the other, not to commit too far in one direction or the other to avoid uh, disappointment and potentially wild swings in the market if uh, one of those variables comes into play. So this, uh, you know, was, was, was a complex moment for him. And of course, juggling as well those dissenters on the committee complicates that task even further of, of justifying and explaining why he's making the moves that he is. Yeah, three words. Less is more as far as the information is concerned. He was, of course, asked about the prospect of cutting rates below zero, this idea of negative rates that we see in many countries around the world. And something that President Trump has also suggested the Federal Reserve should be using here. Just listening to what he had to say on this point. I think if we were to find ourselves in, at some future date, again, at the effect of lower bound, again, not something we are expecting, then I think we would look at using uh, uh, large-scale asset purchases and forward guidance. I do not think we'd be looking at using negative rates. Uh, I just don't think those will be at the top of our list. Uh, uh, to negative rates here, but Claire, it does underscore an important point that they have other options, unlike other countries around the world. Right. I think that's interesting. We're hearing a lot of uh, concerns uh, around at the moment, Julia, that the Fed, uh, you know, it's doing these insurance cuts, that it might be weakening its capacity to act if the U.S. does enter a recession. I think this this debate around negative interest rates just just reinforces the fact that the Fed does still have room. 1.75 to 2 percent is not at zero. We know that central banks in Europe, Denmark, Sweden, Japan are already below zero. So the Fed, uh, you know, is in an enviable position in some ways compared to them. Uh, and I think, you know, it's also worth noting that the, the, the efficacy of, of negative rates as a tool for monetary policy it isn't always guaranteed. It can, for example, uh, hurt banks' profits by you know, forcing them to pay to park money uh, at the Federal Reserve. So clearly, Jerome Powell making it clear that he would rather use the other tools first, the likes of quantitative easing uh, and indeed forward guidance to, to, to ease further if rates do get to zero. Yeah, it's such a great point here. And I think the other thing to emphasise, I mean, we knew he had a delicate balancing act to find here was the idea that he managed to incorporate the recent data that we've seen that has seen a bit of a pickup here for the domestic economy, but just emphasizing the sheer degree of uncertainty everywhere else in the world. And that's the balancing act that they've got to find here. Trade, of course, being one of the big risks. Yeah, absolutely. He, you know, the balancing act, not just because of the very mixed data that we're facing at the moment, but because of that trade uncertainty. And he has to create the appearance of, of not doing uh, what the president wants, of not bowing to political pressures. He was forced to answer questions uh, on that again. But of course, factoring in the trade war and cutting rates without using rates as a way to encourage the administration to, to continue the trade war. There are cynics and, and, fact, and in fact, serious economists out there who've suggested that President Trump is perpetuating this trade war uh, as a way of pushing the Fed into cutting rates. So that kind of feedback loop is something that Jerome Powell is also dealing with this hugely complicated situation, not only Julia, in terms of setting monetary policy, but also in communicating why he's setting it. And I think, uh, you know, we saw that in play yesterday. Yes, managing this certainly takes guts. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much, despite what the president says. OK, moving on. The Chinese tech giant Huawei launching an Android smartphone right now, and it's chosen the heart of Europe 
as the place to do it. Germany hosting the launch of the Mate 30. And unlike Huawei's earlier handsets for the international market, this one will not have Google services pre-installed. Therese Bam joins us now on this story. Interesting location to choose, Cherise, obviously given the importance of the international market. But how excited are international customers going to be if it has the operating system from Android but doesn't have access to the apps here? As far as we know, it will not have access to the apps. Google services will not come pre-installed on this very big flagship phone coming from Huawei. This is a phone that the last year's version sold for upwards of $800, all the way up to more than $1,000 for a more professional version of the phone. And so analysts are all saying across the board that it's got great hardware. I was watching the launch event just before coming into this chair, and I can tell you, there are lots of cameras, there are lots of bells and whistles on this phone, uh, lighter battery, longer battery life, four cameras on the back, kind of one-upping iPhone there, the iPhone 11 that just came with three cameras on the back. But analysts are saying without Google services, this phone will be really hard to sell in international markets. And, and Richard, you kind of addressed that right at, the, at, right at the top of this launch, saying, you know, this has been quite a challenging year for Huawei, a little bit of an understatement there. A couple of the details we got from the launch so far, which is still happening as we speak, is that the uh, Huawei is going to launch the Mate X Fold, uh, their foldable smartphone, something that's supposed to rival Samsung's foldable phone, next month but only in the China market. And that is a really interesting clue because there has been chatter and some reports that this Mate 30 series, this latest flagship phone from Huawei, will not sell in key international markets, Julia. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people were saying this was going to be a key challenger to the iPhone 11 here. Four cameras, not three, to your point as well. But yeah, the difficulty without these apps. Cherise Pham in Hong Kong, thank you so much for the update there. All right, let's move on to our next driver. California's right to impose vehicle emission standards is being officially overturned today by the U.S. federal government. It says automakers can't meet the tough standards imposed by President Obama to combat climate change. Tom Foreman is in D.C. and joins us on this story. Tom, interesting one here and already being challenged by California, but it kind of had a domino effect here in that automakers then created cars with standards that would comply with this for other states and other states also followed suit. So it's about far more than California here, surely. Absolutely. This is not something that the that these states, about 40% of the driving public represented in these various states, have agreed to this sort of thing. They're, they're saying that's fine with them. The automakers have signed on to doing this. But now the Trump administration is saying emphatically, no, this cannot happen. There can be only one federal standard. It has to be the Trump standard, which is less stringent in terms of emissions than the California standard. But listen to what the Transportation Secretary has said as they've announced this uh, this rollback on what California is doing. No state has the authority to opt out of the nation's rules, and no state has the right to impose its policies on everybody else in our whole country. To do otherwise harms consumers and damages the American economy. 
Now, the White House is arguing, the administration is saying that basically the California standards are unreachable, that they're going to put this huge burden on the auto industry and everyone else. And they're saying that by rolling it back, you'll actually produce more cars at a cheaper cost. People will buy more of them and that will lower emissions overall. But I must say, you have to understand politically in this country, for a Republican administration to do this is absolutely just 180 degrees opposite of what Republicans have argued for years. Republicans here for years have said states should be able to make their own choices about where they're going forward. The federal government should not be this onerous hand reaching in saying it has to be our way. They've said that many times over Democratic proposals that tried to have one national standard for all sorts of things. And yet now, here's a Republican administration saying, no, 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 it's unthinkable that this would happen. This, this fight is absolutely going to the courts, and we'll see what the courts have to say about it. Yeah, automakers and consumers aside, the lawyers here rubbing their hands together. We'll, uh, we'll watch this space. Tom Foreman, thank yeah. you so much for that. You're welcome, Julia. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif has told CNN that there could be, quote, all-out war if the U.S. or Saudi Arabia launch strikes against it. Those two countries are accusing Iran of being behind attacks on Saudi oil facilities last weekend. Zarif spoke exclusively to CNN's Nick Payton-Walsh. What would be the American or Saudi military strike on Iran An all-out war. You make a very serious statement, Minister. A very serious statement, Minister. Well, I make a very serious statement about defending our country. I'm making a very serious statement that we don't want war. We don't want to engage in a military confrontation. We believe that a military confrontation based on deception is awful. We'll have a lot of casualties. But we won't blink to defend our territory. Put yourself in Saudi Arabia's shoes. If there was an attack on Iranian sovereign territory with cruise missiles launched from Saudi Arabia, what would Iran's response be? Well, they're making that up. Why do they want to make that up, that it was from Iranian territory? The Yemenis have announced responsibility for that. They have provided information about that. They have answered all the Saudi a disinformation campaign about the fact that they launched this attack against Saudi Arabia in self-defense. Now, they want to pin uh, the blame on Iran in order to achieve something, and that is why I'm saying this is agitation for war, uh, because it's based on lies, it's based on deception. But you lie and deceive, and it serves your interest. It doesn't even serve their interest more of Nick's exclusive interview with the Iranian foreign minister in the next hour. John Defterius joins us now, though, on this story. John, I'm just watching what's going on in oil prices today, and we've had an incredibly volatile week. The truth here is when we have a problem for Saudi Arabia that impacts oil in that country, it has global ramifications. Does a solution here, ultimately, if you talk to the Saudis here, have to be an, an international solution here? Because it's clearly going to be a, a hot topic at the U.S next week. 
Well, it's a fantastic point, uh, Julia, because you'd have to be numb not to feel what's been going on here in Saudi Arabia. At every presentation, uh, for example, at the Ministry of Defense, it was mentioned. Abdulaziz bin Salman, the Minister of Energy, said it at the press conference uh, last night. And then we even had Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince, uh, putting out transcripts with his calls with the president of South Korea. Uh, and the prime minister of Japan saying it is a global response that's needed here uh, and why it is needed at this stage. Now, even the French foreign minister was suggesting that it couldn't have been the Houthis that doing an attack of that scale uh, because the sophistication was way too high and they're following the tracking that Saudi Arabia is presenting to them. So you could see a case here, a win for Saudi Arabia, and I'm not taking out a response into that uh, conversation here, an attack back on Iran, but a win would be not just maritime security, and there's a coalition already formed with the United States and the U.K., maybe the French joining that. But to get the protection of the facilities in Dahran, because a mother load was hit, they knocked down 250 missiles or drone attacks over the last couple of years. But you can imagine that stretching all the way to the West Raymond and Jeddah and going north to the Yambu port, which has a big refinery there on the Red Sea. If they could get that narrative, the political support and also the, the physical support going into the United Nations General Assembly, they would think that is a victory. Because you think about it, Julia, a year ago, Donald Trump was suggesting, why should we defend Saudi Arabia, we have our energy independence with this shale production and total combined production of almost 13 million barrels a day. That's such a great point, actually, in effect, uniting them all in, in tackling this problem. John, the other obvious thing here to point out as well, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, was in the meantime, President Trump saying he's going to step up sanctions against Iran. What capacity here has the United States got to further step up sanctions and what is that going to mean for Iran ultimately on an economic basis? Well, not a lot, uh, Julia, because they have been taking a squeeze and you can see it on any measurement uh, for Iran. But I think this market in oil, and because of the narrative there on the Iranian sanctions, could rally on rhetoric alone, right? You, from Javid Zarif, Mike Pompeo saying this is an act of war by the Iranians, Donald Trump leaving the option here open to say that we could have a very strong response, so that's putting up the pressure. And you look at the volatility over the last week alone, we're in a 10 to $11 range. That says a lot. And we were lulled into thinking that Aramco could get up to nearly 10 million barrels a day of production by the end of September, and it's all solved. But the spare capacity in the world is about 2 million barrels, and we saw reports in the Wall Street Journal suggesting that Saudi Arabia may be taking oil in from Iraq. So in the last hour, I talked to sources here in Saudi Arabia. They're saying, I wouldn't rule it out because they need different blends and they need the extra security as they start to build up. So you can see it is a tight market, Julia, and on pins and needles, particularly when you apply more sanctions to Iran. Yeah, pins and needles. John Defteris, thank you so much for the update there. All right. The UK Supreme Court wrapping up a case brought against Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Opponents of Mr Johnson are arguing that he unlawfully suspended Parliament in the run-up to Brexit. The last legal arguments will be heard today and a ruling could come as early as this evening. So we'll watch for that. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But still to come, Mark Zuckerberg leaving Silicon Valley for Capitol Hill in a bid to make a few more friends for Facebook. Stay with us. Plenty more to come. Welcome back 
to first move. Take a look at futures right now for the U.S. majors. We have strengthened a little bit following a pretty much unchanged session despite the volatility yesterday following the Fed's move to cut rates and at least leave open the door to more cuts should they be required. Let's talk this through. Joining us now, Binky Chatter, he's the global chief, uh, sorry, the chief global strategist, get the wording right, at Deutsche Bank. Binky, fantastic to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. What do you make of the Fed? Yesterday, uh, I, I would argue they're essentially sitting, uh, you know, on the fence. If growth slows, they will cut some more. If growth, does, you know, it doesn't slow, they won't. Uh, our view is a little different. Our view is very clear. Growth is slowing. Growth is going to continue to slow, and so they will cut as growth slows, and they will continue to cut for a little while longer after so, growth bottoms. So you're far more worried than Jay Powell, at least, was letting on yesterday. How close to recession are we? Because I know you're one of those sure. who thinks we're far closer, perhaps, than people realize. Sure. You know, there's two or three very simple points to make. I mean, if you look at the manufacturing sector in the U.S. and you look at the ISMs, I mean, you know, we've been slowing from a peak back in September of last year. Uh, and it's a leap of faith to think that, uh, you know, something that's going down like this is suddenly going to stop here tomorrow and then start maybe to even, you know, going up, number one. Number two, people say that, you know, they sort of mixed signals and you look at the bounce in services. But, I mean, if you do actually look at services and you look at the ISMs, I mean, they've essentially been coming down in a sawtoothed manner. So the last two bumps did not sustain. I would argue, you know, the U.S. economy is slowing broadly. It is slowing unambiguously. And I would argue that the U.S. economy is dangerously close to sort of tipping over what I would into a recession. What I would argue is we are very, very close to what has historically been a stall speed for the U.S. If you look at the labor market, for example, payroll's growth, you know, is running the six-month change at an annual rate, so running at about 1.3%. That is, number one, the slowest pace that we've had in 10 years at any point in this recovery. It's bound to slow going straight when down. the labor market gets so tight. And I guess back to your point about manufacturing, would, yeah. it's still only, what, 15 to 20% of the U.S. economy. Are you saying actually that you're worried about the consumer too despite things like retail sales because of what you're saying about the jobs market so so consumption growth is always going to be over you know some period of time tightly related basically to labor income growth and the biggest component of that is jobs growth right now just one additional point that i would make is payrolls growth in the u.s you know has slowed from two and a half percent in the middle of last year down to 1.3 percent the services sector is much bigger than the manufacturing sector, as, as you yes. just said. And most of that slowing has actually come from the services sector, not the manufacturing sector, because it is much bigger. We are running at 1.3%. And I would argue that the, 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 the stall speed or tipping point is around 1%. If you look at private payrolls growth historically going all the way back to the 1960s, That's whenever we've gone watch. through 1%, we've ended up in a full recession. What does this mean for stock markets? Because you're also arguing that there's a gap here, a gap between the fundamentals that you're talking about here mm-hmm. and where stock markets are. 
If you're right on the fundamentals here, what kind of pullback are you talking about for, for stock markets potentially here? So, so you know, the, the things that I would point out are, number one, the U.S. stock market is about 15% expensive to where growth is currently. 15%. That's right. I would put uh, where we should be on the basis of, uh, you know, the, the, the ISMs and the like at 2,600, not at 3,000. Now, I do have a target for 3250, and most people are confused by that. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> uh, what I would argue is that because the U.S. because U.S. economy is slowing and it's slowing pretty severely, I would argue, uh, uh, you know, we will get a relent on trade policy, and so my constructive view or return in the stock market is uh, predicated deal. on getting a credible trade deal uh, 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 that would be very positive, and 32.50 then will look too conservative. Very quickly, how long are you going to leave it before you change that call if we don't uh, get a deal? I mean, it's a call. We're very close to the end of the month, so I will accept, uh, you know, uh, Throw it, the the, towel the, the whatever in. on my face. Custard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We have to wrap it there, Finger Chatter, yeah. yeah. the Chief of Global Strategist at Deutsche Bank. Thank you so much. We'll get you back it's to discuss. The market opens next. Stay with us. insurance rate cut yesterday and the door open at least to further cuts if they're required in the future though you have to say you do feel the bar is higher here for action given the dissent on the governing council also injecting another 75 billion dollars as we mentioned earlier into the banking system today to Powell the plumber in this case a third straight day of emergency moves following the spike in bank-to-bank -bank lending rates earlier this week. Also, U.S.-China trade negotiators getting back to work in Washington today. High-level talks, of course, next month. Reports say Chinese officials could even travel to the Midwest this week to meet with farmers. More agricultural buying ahead. Watch this space. All right, let me talk you through the global movers here, too. AT&T in focus on a Wall Street Journal report that the wireless carrier is considering the sale of direct TV, the satellite TV business losing subscribers as customers shift to streaming. An activist investor recently pushed for the sale of direct TV. AT&T, of course, the parent company of CNN, and that report again in the Wall Street Journal. U.S. Steel lower in the session, the company lowering its guidance for the second half of this year, citing lack of demand and falling U.S. steel prices. It said it will continue to idle two of its blast furnaces and reiterated plans to cut 2,500 jobs in Europe. And finally, Alibaba, the Chinese e-commerce company celebrating five years since it listed here on the New York Stock Exchange, a $25 billion IPO, if you remember, the largest in history, still the largest. The stock has more than doubled from its IPO price of $68. Market cap today, a cool $465 billion. All right, joining us now, I'm happy to say, Andrew Left, founder of Citroen Research and prominent activist short seller. 
getting my tongue twisted today. Great to have you with us. Good morning. Now, a year ago, you said Alibaba looks like a good buy here. I have to say it's gone nowhere fast in the last year, and it's become a sort of victim, well, I think, of the trade war. If you, uh-huh. if you go 52 weeks, it's right on par with Amazon. Right. It's definitely a victim of the trade war. Uh, I, I think the investors are not... Uh, they're not rushing to buy any Chinese stocks right now. So there's so many of them. Uh, you know, we can make a list of all the stocks from JD.com, Bzone. There's so many of them. So it's not an outlier. It's just what's happening right now, victim of the trade war. I should correct myself. Victim of the perception of the trade war versus actually trade, trade impacted. Yeah. Okay, so relative basis then. Amazon versus Alibaba, if we have to make the comparison. Very different beasts, very different animals. But I, mean, I like uh, going forward, if we're looking for a year or five years, I think Alibaba. Uh, they still dominate the server market. Not as much competition in China as Amazon is facing in the U.S. with the data center business. And e-commerce, the runway they have going forward in China is a lot greater. Amazon's great. We all know it's great. And it's fully penetrated. No doubt they'll still grow. But uh, if you look at the overall economy in China and the growth of the middle class there, Alibaba's a beneficiary. Do we need to worry about a trade deal or not a trade deal or an escalation here? Because there are all sorts of risks here, perhaps... The United States cuts China off completely as far as technology is concerned, for example. Well, everything's based on perception, right? Yeah. So as you're saying, you know, we've had a perception of a trade war. So going forward, I think, uh, yeah, it, it is a concern. Absolutely. Until the China-U.S. thing completely gets ironed out, it seems as if all these Chinese stocks are just all stuck in the mud right now. But if that's the case, maybe they'll start looking at the possibility of relisting these stocks in Hong Kong or in China. And if that's the case, they go up. Really? Because that will so. basically mean they do an alternative. I mean, Hong Kong right now is a bit hairy, but... Um... I mean, there's no reason. If you, how crazy is the concept? Imagine if Amazon was only traded in China and not in the U.S. So you can only imagine the nationalism factor of wanting to bring Alibaba back home, and that would open it up to investors in China as well. How high is that risk, do you think? I mean, it'd be a good when you say it's risk. It, it would be a good thing if you're if you could trade your shares of Amazon. Oh, I'm sorry for Alibaba right now for Chinese Alibaba. It would probably have much higher multiples. The reason why it wasn't done five years ago and the IPO was done here is there was restrictions in China on what can go public to have to be profitable. So this was like the breeding ground for stocks. So, but I think if we've evolved past that right now, the Chinese people should have the opportunity to buy Alibaba, and then the multiple would expand. Are you exposed? Do you, are you long Alibaba or? I, I was. And I admit, I got a little bored out of it. <laughs> you know, it, it just seemed like, okay, I'm not going to forecast the government. I own some JD on a smaller position. I do think you're a much happy person, much happier person, at least on television when you're buying things as opposed to uh, short selling. Yeah, uh, there's no a lot doubt. of criticism there. Now, I'm being tough today. On April the 5th, you said Lyft is an amateur short. Shorting disruptive wow. companies that dominate a megatrend simply because they lose money is a sure way to go broke. It is. Uh, you know, I'm amazed. I'll tell you something, and I own Uber, and I'll tell you when I'm wrong. I own Uber, and I own Lyft. I own them both. I'm down in both of them. Yes. I, actually, I own them privately also, and I own them on the public markets. Uh, for some reason, the market gives runway to some companies and not runway to these ride-sharing companies. They're really, you know, they're really unloved, despite the fact that Lyft and Uber operate a duopoly in what is no doubt a megatrend. I mean, I have four children. I have two of them that are driving age, and none of them drive. They both take Uber and Lyft everywhere. Uber Eats, Uber. Uh, if you look at alternative delivery systems for Amazon, that last mile, they're both Uber and Lyft. But people want the profitability right now. you have to show a viable business model. I guess that's the point. I, I could show you 20 businesses listed on the NASDAQ, 30 businesses that have not shown profitability but have shown top-line growth. So this comes to my point now. 
our perception is changing. Are we having a sort of realisation of the valuations that companies are being given in the private markets relative to the valuations that they're being given in the public markets. We work, another one where we're suddenly going, hang on a second, one minute we were talking about an IPO worth 46, 47 billion dollars and now we're talking about maybe a we work to 20 has been, billion dollars. I, as a short seller, I was just hoping everyone was going to forget about WeWork and let it go public so I can short it. So I'm quite <laughs> upset of all the publicity okay. it's taken. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, it's not what you're looking at with the Uber or Lyft. These are not disruptive megatrend companies. It's a replicable business model. Uh, it's office space. It's what it is. It's, it's, they don't even own the offices. So it's a complete opposite of what I look at as with an Uber and a Lyft. But, and I think with the CEO, a little just completely brought attention to it. And I'll be surprised if it gets public. Okay. Okay. I'm going to try again with this question though. SoftBank, another company, Vision Fund 2. It's now putting a lot of money in, it seems, itself. It's also talking about potentially bringing its workers in. This is a massive technology investor. And I guess I question at this moment, given the sensitivity to loss-making companies, at least as I see it, again, we're going, are the valuations in the private market? I mean, with, with, with all respect to Massa, he looks soft bags. So I said, we have that 100-year vision. I don't think there's one investor out here that wants to invest on a 100-year vision besides him. So when it goes to a public marketplace, it doesn't hold. They have a slew of bad investments. Uh, you can, you know, look at Compass. You can just keep going on and on of, of, of things that uh, have money invested by SoftBank that they will never take out in the public markets. That being said, they've made a fair amount of money in other stocks. But I don't think that halo effect of SoftBank by no means should translate it to, oh, we're definitely going to be able to take it public. Interesting. So do you disagree with me then that there's a, a mismatch between the valuations in private markets right now and the, the valuations that public investors are willing to give Of course, companies? also in private markets, you don't get the same amount of scrutiny. You don't have short sellers. You don't have people. in It's a private transaction. And you only need one buyer. Almost like selling a piece of real estate, you need one buyer. So if you find one buyer to come in and say, oh, we'll put X amount in at X valuation, and SoftBank has been that one big buyer over the years, and you take them out. The crazy part what would happen is what happens if Fidelity and all the major funds have to lower the way they mark their private investments. And if they lower, then they have to start lowering their exposure in the public marketplace. So there could be a longer tail to this. Is that coming? I wish I knew. I mean, I mean it, it could be. I mean, if, if I'm sitting on... $20 billion in private investments, and then all of a sudden I realize, oh my God, I have to mark these to 13 or $14 billion and how I want to completely lower my exposure. So it's kind of like the tail that wags the dog. Yeah, I mean, SoftBank's got deep pockets, but other perhaps... I mean, Fidelity is deeper. Interesting. We're going to come back to this conversation, I think. We'll see. I just think given everything else that's going on in the world right now, maybe there's a reality check going on, but you don't feel it. You think these are specific issues. I mean, Yes, there are specific issues. There's still some wonderful companies doing some wonderful things and real disruption in this world. Uh, but I think profitability has to be involved at some time. But I've been saying this for years. Uh, so I think investors still, with rates the way they are right now, will still pay for that top line growth. Andrew Leff, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Andrew Leff, founder of Citroen Research and prominent activist, short seller and buyer as well. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're coming up after this. Soaring pork prices are a big problem in China. What is the government going to do about it? Well, we'll show you what they're doing right now. Stay with us. We're back in two.
Welcome back to First Move. China moving to stabilize its pork prices by auctioning stocks from its national reserves. The country's in the midst of a swine fever crisis that's wiped out around a third of its pigs. China's pork market is the largest in the world. The pig population has fallen by 100 million just in the last year. And as prices soar, $452 million has been handed out in food subsidies to low-income families. In the government auction, each bidder can buy up to 300 tons of pork. David Culver joins us now from Beijing. David, great to have you with us. I saw some data that suggested pork prices has risen as much as 46% over the last year. I mean, that's a huge price increase. What impact is this release of reserves actually going to have on the price? Will it help? Julie, it's incredible to think 46%, but we actually have even seen numbers go higher than that in some places. 70%, nearly 90% increase. So it depends on where you're looking, but certainly it's being felt here. And we, we really have to grasp what pork means to China. And you have to look at the numbers to see that. As far as consumption is concerned, let's give you 2018 numbers. They consumed 55 million metric tons here in China. Put that in perspective, that's more than the U.S. and Europe combined. In fact, it's nearly double what the U.S. and Europe consumed last year. So we wanted to know, to your point, how's it being felt here, not only in major cities like Beijing, but also in smaller towns. Here's what we found. Inside Beijing's home plate restaurant, American barbecue is king. Their specialty, pork ribs. How long will this take? Uh, it will take six to eight hours to smoke. General Manager Bill Chen touring us through the kitchen. He says China's growing pork crisis has had him paying about 20% more for the meat. He's about to print new menus to help ease the burden. Are you worried by raising the prices that you might push customers away? I'm a little bit worried about that. Yeah. The Chinese pork market, the world's largest, has been ravaged by an outbreak of African swine fever. Demand is strong as ever, setting prices up nearly 90% in some places. It's a reality felt in small towns, too. Despite the chill in the air, this inner Mongolian market bustling midweek. Among the raw offerings, pork. Butchers are eager to make a sale. Compared to previous years, business is worse. The locals whom we've spoken with in this small town market tell us they have noticed the price of pork going up, but their consumption has stayed the same. They're willing to pay more. I need to eat pork. It's a big part of our life. Chinese people consume more pork than the U.S. and Europe combined. It is also the biggest supplier of pork, which explains why the swine fever outbreak is so devastating. Since late last year, a third of China's pigs, more than 100 million, have been wiped out. To help replenish the supply, China has suggested they will ease tariffs on U.S. pork imports in the midst of the trade war. They're also trying to regulate the domestic market from within. The Chinese government has just released some 10,000 metric tons of pork. Is that going to help you guys at all? I think it will be good for the common people and the restaurant like us. But Bill is hesitant about the long-term impacts. The trade war between the two countries, the politics, I don't know. For now, Home Plate keeps dishing up, bringing American customers a taste of home and serving local Chinese their staple meat with a Texas twist and a soaring price tag. How much of an impact has he seen with these rising prices, Julia, in, in the past few weeks? He said he has seen 
about a 20% increase. That's what he's paying. I asked him, so what in turn are you going to do with the menu prices? He's going to raise them about 10%. He doesn't want to put the entire burden and push off all his customer base. But that's the reality not only some of these restaurants are dealing with, but as you saw there in the smaller towns, some of the consumers. But they say they're going to be paying it. They're, they're willing to put up with it for now. They're hoping this release from the Central Reserve will ease things a bit, especially, Julia, when you consider what's coming at the first of next month. October 1st is National Day here. It is a major holiday. It celebrates 70 years since the founding of Communist China, and it's going to be at a, about a week long of celebrations. Folks getting together with their families. They're going to be having meals. What's going to be on the table? You can bet pork. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm just just looking at the numbers here. We have a major maths problem here. I mean, we're talking, as you said, 55 million tons. They've only released 10,000 from from the strategic reserves here. I mean, it's it's nothing. It's peanuts compared to what's actually required here. So I guess two questions. One, do we even have a sense of of what they've got in the strategic reserves here for pork? Because even with the command economy, if you don't have the reserves, you can't help here. And, And two, they've simply got to get swine fever under control, haven't they? Are they making any progress there? It's frustrating when it comes to your second question as far as getting swine fever under control because there's no vaccination for this. So their solution as of now has been simply to essentially decimate more than 100 million pigs altogether. And and it seems like a lot of the farmers aren't nearly as willing to replenish those stocks right away. So in turn, they're having to import from the U.S., from Brazil, from other countries. And as far as what they have in the Central Reserve, China hasn't released those figures. The Commerce Ministry not putting that out there. But one of the other things that I find interesting here is the timing of this with the trade war, Julia. And you've got recently the Chinese government suggesting that they will ease some of the tariffs on pork and soybeans. Well, that's not only a goodwill gesture towards the U.S. in these negotiations, it's also something that they desperately need. So it benefits them, too. Yeah, such a great point, David. Desperate measures here. Is pork the path to some kind of trade deal? David Culver in Beijing there. Thank you so much for that report. All right, coming up here on First Move, Mr. Zuckerberg goes to Washington again. Why the Facebook founder meeting U.S. senators. We're live from D.C. with the latest. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief. Three former TEPCO executives have been cleared of negligence over the Fukushima nuclear disaster. The case against the former Tokyo Electric Power Company executives is the only criminal case to arise from the 2011 meltdown, the worst nuclear disaster, in fact, since Chernobyl. And what might have been Disney's chief executive Bob Iger believes his firm could have merged with Apple if Steve Jobs was still alive. The revelation comes in Iger's upcoming autobiography. He writes that he had a close relationship with Jobs, who died in 2011 from cancer. Disney and Apple are set to launch rival streaming services in November. Yes, I'm still not ruling it out. All right, let's move on. Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg meeting with U.S. senators today. The company telling CNN that they will be talking about future regulation of the Internet. For more, let's talk to Brian Fung. Brian, I have to say, I think self-regulation will be the words that uh, Mark Zuckerberg is using, perhaps not the senators. What can we expect today? 
Right. Well, Facebook isn't releasing very many more details uh, about these meetings, but we do know that Mark Zuckerberg had uh, dinner last night with a number of senators, including Senator Mark Warner and Senator Richard Blumenthal, um, both very powerful Democratic senators, to talk about things like election security, uh, uh, data privacy and competition issues. Uh, meanwhile, Mark Zuckerberg is planning to have meetings today with a number of senators as well, um, with uh, Senator Maria Cantwell, who's been working on federal privacy legislation, um, as well as House Intelligence Chairman uh, Adam Schiff. Now, there may be others. Uh, we're trying to figure out who Mark Zuckerberg may be meeting with and what the topics will be. Uh, but it seems like uh, a lot of the issues um, surrounding, surrounding this have to do with how Facebook could be regulated in the future um, as it grapples with issues like, like data and security and privacy. Yeah, Brian, you raised such a great point there. Never mind, quite frankly, about future regulation. What about election security into 2020? This is such an important subject. And as far as I can see, even with the talks that we've seen between Congress or congressional members and these big tech giants, we're simply not ready to stem the risk of interference here. Would you agree? Right. Well, experts say, uh, you know, the, the potential for misinformation and deep fakes uh, is, is greater than ever. And uh, you have a lot of, um, you know, companies like Facebook trying to figure out how they're going to, uh, you know, beat back some of this um, misinformation and, and malicious content. Uh, Facebook has set up a civil rights task force to try and um, suss out some of this stuff before it really has an impact. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of lawmakers will say that's not quite enough. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what kinds of policies uh, they try to, to come up with to, uh, to, you know, put in place. Yes, talk is important, but we'd like less talk and more action, perhaps. So Brian Fung, thank you so much for bringing in that update there. And we'll watch those talks and any announcements potentially later on from D.C. All right, let me give you a look at what we're seeing as far as the U.S. majors are concerned this morning. We are holding in positive territory, four-tenths of a percent higher from the Nasdaq, following, of course, that rate cut decision from the Federal Reserve. Dissent, of course, on the governing council over what to do next and, indeed, the rate cut that we got there. But Jay Powell reiterating they will do, do more if required at this stage. Quick look at all markets as well. It's been a volatile week ever since the Saudi attacks, of course, this weekend. Right now, we're adding, as you can see, one and a half percent higher there for Brent, 1.2 percent for WTI crude in the United States. All right, more to come in a couple of hours with The Express. But for now, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.